Welcome to World View, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Two stories featured more prominently than any other on our podcast in 2019. There was the saga of Britain's at times farcical attempts to come to an agreement with itself on a route out of the European Union. And there was the all-consuming, unrelenting, at times overwhelming story of the Trump presidency. We strove manfully, personfully, to cover other stories. My own highlights included our interview in February with the Washington Post columnist Jason Rezaian about his book Prisoner, detailing his 544 days in an Iranian prison where he was held on a false accusation of spying for the US government. In July, Sally Hayden told us about her conversations with migrants and refugees held in the Tajura detention centre in Libya after it was hit by an airstrike that killed more than 50 people. Guy Hedgeco kept us up to date with political developments in Spain, where Catalan independence continued to dominate the picture. Daniel McLaughlin gave us the Ukrainian perspective on the impeachment investigation that threatens to derail the Trump presidency. And Peter Goff reported on his visits to Xinjiang, where the detention of hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in so-called re-education camps was the subject of international controversy and condemnation. But what were our own correspondence highlights? We asked four of them to pick a moment that stood out for them as being of major significance. First up is our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. The one day that uh, stands out for me is September 24th. On behalf of the General Assembly, I have the honour to welcome to the United Nations His Excellency Donald Trump. Thank you very much, Mr. President. At that moment, Donald Trump and world leaders were gathered in New York for the UN General Assembly. It was a Tuesday afternoon and at around 4pm local time, news started coming in from Washington that a an announcement was coming. Mr. Prime Minister, what will be your message to the Taoiseach today? Uh, I was covering uh, Leo Varadkar uh, up at New York and this news started coming in through Twitter. No one quite knew whether to believe it. But then, uh, shortly after, Nancy Pelosi held a press conference. For today, I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. I'm directing our six committees to proceed with their investigations under that umbrella. All year, and indeed since Donald Trump was elected, there had been talk about impeachment. Democrats had been trying to impeach Donald Trump. We had the Mueller investigation that went on for nearly two years. And back in March... Uh, Robert Mueller finally presented his report and essentially uh, it died a bit of a death as the months went on. Uh, there was a lot of controversy over it. William Barr, the Attorney General, was criticised for releasing a, a summary of that report and kind of spinning the narrative around it. Uh, and in fact, Robert Mueller had not really made a judgment on whether Donald Trump had obstructed justice but did not exonerate him. But ultimately, there wasn't enough in that to impeach Donald Trump. So I think everyone in Washington had realised and accepted there was going to be no impeachment. But then in the early weeks of September, things changed when details started emerging about the Ukraine inquiry. And a whistleblower report emerged whereby a whistleblower, an anonymous, we still don't know who it is, an anonymous whistleblower from the White House had filed a complaint about a phone call Donald Trump had had with the Ukrainian president. Details of this started emerging in late August, early September. And then on 24th September, Nancy Pelosi announced this impeachment probe. The president has admitted to asking the president of Ukraine to take actions which would benefit him politically. The, action of the, Trump, the actions of the Trump presidency revealed a dishonorable fact of the president's betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections. The president must be held accountable 
no one is above the law. And that started a frantic three months of impeachment inquiries, privately, publicly, which culminated in the impeachment uh, vote on the 18th of December. Breaking news tonight, a deeply divided moment playing out in American history as we come on the air. President Trump has just been impeached on both Article 1, abuse of power, and on Article 2, obstruction of Congress. What was interesting that it did come out of the blue in a sense, and no one really would have thought earlier at the beginning of 2019, certainly not in the summer, uh, when people were, you know, much more interested in what was happening in Iran, uh, about conflict in, in the Gulf, etc., that this story was going to come out of nowhere and actually be the smoking gun, actually be the issue that would lead eventually to the impeachment of Donald Trump. And it's also significant because Nancy Pelosi had resisted impeachment for so long. She has faced calls from the more progressive wing of her party to impeach Donald Trump uh, for months. Uh, some members of her party wanted to impeach him uh, over the Russia investigation, but she pushed back on that consistently. She's a seasoned political operator. She knew about the political risks of uh, pursuing impeachment. She lived through the Clinton impeachment when, in fact, uh, Clinton's party, the Democrats, were punished in the midterm elections for the impeachment of, of Clinton, not Newt Gingrich and the Republicans. So she was very wary of this. But, but what effectively happened, and, and she said that during the impeachment vote on Wednesday, uh, the 18th, was that Donald Trump's actions gave us no choice. She was almost reluctantly pushed into opening an invest investigation because Donald Trump's actions in soliciting foreign interference in an election uh, were so egregious. Uh, so it is just a kind of a standout moment for me because of the fact that, it, it, you know, with all the drama and all the tumultuous actions of Donald Trump's presidency, this was something that emerged out of nowhere at a left field in September and ultimately led to its impeachment before the end of the year. And Suzanne, you were present in the House of Representatives for that vote, the, the vote to impeach Trump, just the third president in, in US history to be impeached. What was the atmosphere like, you know, at that, at that moment? Yeah, it was an extraordinary day. I was in the chamber for the uh, debate and the vote. The, the debate, uh, the House met at 9am and it wasn't until after 8pm that the two votes on the article of impeachment uh, were taken. It was it was a really, uh, really atmospheric and highly charged uh, atmosphere within the chamber. Thank you, Madam Speaker. I yield uh, 30 seconds to the gentleman from Pennsylvania. Throughout the day, it ebbed and flowed in terms of members of Congress coming in and out of the chamber to give their two or three minute speech. This charade is not because President Trump is guilty of a high crime or misdemeanor, but because one political party doesn't like him or his policies of America first. During the day, Nancy Pelosi came in and out. She took her seat at different points, having chats to different members of her caucus, um, listening sometimes when some of the speakers uh, spoke. Uh, and uh, really, things were quite um, predictable, I suppose, to a sense. Everyone knew what way this story was going to play out. But then in the hour before the vote, uh, the, the chamber became packed both in the public gallery, in the press gallery and uh, in the chamber itself. Um, all the members of Congress began to file in as they built this crescendo, which was the vote. The vote started and then there was a rush uh, for the 435 members to cast their vote. Uh, one Republican voted in error. He had to, re uh, to uh, resolve that. Um, one Democrat, Tulsi Gabbard, the presidential candidate, uh, voted present, eff effectively stood back from the vote. Apart from those uh, small surprises, I think everyone knew the way the vote was going to go. And it was no less momentous. Ultimately, Donald Trump became the third president to be impeached. And there was a real sense of history in the chamber. And it, it, it was so ironic that it happened 21 years almost to the day that uh, Bill Clinton had been impeached just before Christmas, too, back in 1998.
We must get rid of the poisonous venom of excessive partisanship, obsessive animosity, and uncontrolled anger. That is not what America deserves. That is not what America is about. Next up is our London editor, Dennis Staunton. My moment would be the 29th of March, 2019. This was meant to be Brexit Day, the big day, the day that people took back control. Instead, it is a march on Parliament, paralysed by indecision and infighting. This was the date that the UK was due to leave the European Union and Theresa May decided that she was going to bring her withdrawal agreement back for one last go and see if it uh, could get through uh, the House of Commons. There are those who will say the House has rejected every option so far. You'll probably lose, so why bother? I bother because this is the last opportunity to guarantee Brexit. And for a third time, it failed to do so, but it failed more narrowly than it had before. Mr Speaker, I think it should be a matter of profound regret to every member of this House that once again we have been unable to support leaving the European Union in an orderly fashion. The atmosphere in Westminster was quite extraordinary. Because you had huge demonstrations outside, both by pro-Brexit groups and anti-Brexit groups, but the bigger ones by people who were demanding Brexit and there was a quite ugly element to part of that. Some people from the far right, supporters of Tommy Robinson, were there. Where is the person who represents you, who thinks like you, who cares like you, who gives a fuck like you? A smallish group, but a pretty ugly crowd. Order! And then inside, there was an atmosphere of high tension. The DUP, who had been supporting Theresa May's government but had been opposing the withdrawal agreement, they continued to oppose it, but a lot of the Eurosceptics, including Boris Johnson and uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, decided that they were going to vote for this withdrawal agreement because they feared that if they didn't, that Brexit would be lost. So what happened was that you had this split where Theresa May lost by 58 votes and uh, and, and they included the DUP's 10 votes, but also some uh, Eurosceptic Conservatives who said that the reason they were voting against it was because they couldn't vote uh, for something that the DUP wouldn't vote for. And if you remember what this was, was Theresa May's deal that would have uh, left the whole of the United Kingdom in a customs union with the European Union, but would have had no border in the Irish Sea, unlike the uh, the deal that Boris Johnson has brought back, which of course has got an economic border in the Irish Sea. The reason that I think this date was a significant one was because, in a way, almost everybody miscalculated. Uh, Theresa May uh, miscalculated because she thought it was uh, one last throw of the dice that she might actually be able to succeed, and she didn't. Uh, the DUP certainly miscalculated because they thought that they were going to uh, that this was going to help to topple Theresa May, as indeed it did, and that they would then support a more Eurosceptic candidate, and Boris Johnson became their candidate 
candidate because he went on to reassure them at their party conference that he would never do anything that would create any kind of economic barrier uh, or a regulatory or a customs barrier between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. So they miscalculated badly and in a way you might say that people like Boris Johnson and company did as well because actually there was no reason why they ought to have voted for uh, Theresa May's deal, uh, you know, given that it wasn't going to go through. And certainly it didn't create, uh, you know, any immediate problems, uh, you know, from his point of view. And then uh, the other people, of course, who really did miscalculate during those days were those people in the Labour Party who wanted to have Brexit done. They didn't want to be seen to support Theresa May and her deal. But nonetheless, they didn't want to go into a general election without having uh, completed Brexit. And they had an opportunity not only to pass her deal, which had some amendments to it that would have protected workers' rights and environmental rights, but also a couple of days later when they had a series of votes on various options for Brexit and there was a proposal that Britain would stay in the customs union and that lost by just two votes. Now, had that one passed and had Theresa May's deal passed or an amended version with that, then what you would have had would have been uh, the DUP would have avoided a border in the Irish Sea and uh, Britain would have left on uh, Theresa May's terms and it could be that the, uh, that the leadership contest that followed uh, her resignation because she had said she was going to step down. It would have happened in a very different atmosphere. She would have delivered Brexit and that leadership election wouldn't have been about Brexit and of course the subsequent general election wouldn't have been about Brexit either. This is the time when we move on and discard the old labels of leave and remain. In fact, the very, the very words seem tired to me as I speak, as defunct as big enders and little enders or, or Montagues and Capulets at the end of the play. Now is the, now is the, time, to act, now is the time to act together as one reinvigorated nation, one united kingdom. Our third moment of the year is picked by Lara Marlowe, our correspondent in Paris. For me, I, I think that the biggest event of the year uh, was the Gilets jaunes revolt, the Yellow Vest. The Arc de Triomphe once again becoming the backdrop of Yellow Vest riots. The police used tear gas and water cannon to try to disperse the crowd. It did actually start in 2018. It started in mid-November, but it went on through the actually through the spring and summer and kind of really fizzled out this autumn and was replaced by the, the strikes this autumn. Uh, but it, it had a huge effect on France. Demonstrators say they've been disproportionately targeted by the police. 1,900 people injured in 12 weeks. Uh, one investigative journalist who did a study of it said that 24 of the demonstrators lost an eye, five of them lost a hand, uh, 2,000 police and gendarmes were injured. President Emmanuel Macron had to fork out 17 billion euro in uh, reduced taxes or cancelled taxes and social assistance uh, to, to somehow mollify, pacify the demonstrators. Um, there are 313 judiciaries now, go, uh, judiciary investigations going on into excessive use of force by the police. Uh, the finance minister says it, it costs the economy, this is in addition to the $17 billion, another $4.5 billion in, in lost um, income. So it, it had a huge effect. I think the biggest effect ultimately was the, the loss of confidence and optimism that had sort of been there with, with Macron earlier in his term. And it just seemed that the country was adrift and that nobody was in control 
Um, the interior minister, Christophe Castaner, uh, was, was kind of disgraced because on one of the nights of the demonstrations, he went to a, a nightclub near his office and was seen throwing back vodka and, and kissing a young woman. Uh, he hasn't lived that down. Um, poor Macron was skiing in the Pyrenees uh, in March on actually one of the very worst days. And he, he did rush back to Paris, uh, but there were photographs posted of him drinking wine with his friends in the sunshine on the, the terrace of the ski resort. And, and that also looked very bad. When I came home from my um, end of the year holiday in early January, uh, I found my concierge in tears because uh, the Gilets Jaunes had, had burned uh, rubbish bins in our street. Uh, the ministry around the corner from my building uh, had had its door knocked in with a, um, a, a construction equipment that was hijacked by the Gilets Jaunes. There was glass in the street uh, and uh, there was a burned motorcycle. It, it was just... You know, it, it really felt like a war zone. Uh, so that, that was very memorable. And then the other time was, was March 16th, was the, um, just the day before St. Patrick's Day, of course, was the day that they, they burned down or loot and or looted um, 80 shops and restaurants on the Champs-Élysées. And the Champs-Élysées was just, was just wrecked. I mean, it was, it was ravaged, it was sacked, you know. And, uh, one of the places that the, the, the television image you saw over and over and over was Fouquet's restaurant, which was a very historic place. It was James Joyce's favorite restaurant. It's where Nicolas Sarkozy had, had celebrated his victory in, in uh, 2007. And they went and they were hurling bottles of champagne at police and they were knocking over tables and breaking china. And then they set fire to the red and gold awning of, of Fouquet's restaurant. So it, it really felt like anarchy. Uh, and no one was sure what way it was going to go. The fear that that kind of violence and anarchy could return at any moment uh, continues with people. I mean, Macron said in July that he wasn't sure it was over. Um, and even though the, the protests and marches that are going on now have a different motivation and, and have probably uh, garnered more widespread support. Um, there is still this fear always that, that it could just all spin out of control at any moment. And do you think, Clara, we have seen the last of this particular movement or will we still be hearing about the Gilets Jaunes in 2020? I'm not sure they'll re-emerge in the same form. Uh, one of the interesting things about them was that they had no leaders, uh, which is kind of unprecedented uh, as far as I know. And, and every time some leader tried to emerge, they were, they were squashed down, insulted, uh, disowned by the, by the demonstrators. They had at one point planned to uh, field a list of candidates in the European elections in May. And as soon as anybody would put their name on a list, they would just be disowned by the, by the street. So it really was the street uh, against the government, and it, it showed just the power of, of the mob. Our final and most recent event of the year is selected by Europe editor Patrick Smith. Boris didn't show up. He was engaged elsewhere. The December European summit in Brussels took place without the Brits for the first time in many years. A taste of the future, perhaps. How does it feel like to be representing a third country, I asked an underemployed British diplomat. He winced. 
It was all curiously subdued. None of the usual bustling squads of BBC producers, presenters and political correspondents. No Laura Koonsberg or Sky's Adam Bolton. The banks of cameras and roving mics were absent. The reduced Irish and other media contingents also seemed to be taking their cue from the Brits. Mostly, it was just the Brussels press pack. The real action was on another stage in London, though we watched from here in Brussels with rapt interest. Boris Johnson was the first of the party leaders to cast his vote. The Prime Minister visited... The Finnish EU presidency tried to liven things up with a special contribution from Finnish culture. A genuine Finnish Santa with a red suit and a fine beard who wandered around the press centre, a staff in his hand. An appropriate substitute for Boris, one wag said. A portly, jovial, inveterate myth-maker, some would say liar, with a promised gift for everyone, like the promise there'd be no checks on goods in the Irish Sea. But the summit was a real landmark, a genuine candidate for moment of the year. At every other summit this year, and there have been at least four of them, I've lost count, we were on a roller coaster of uncertainty. Britain would leave, Britain wouldn't leave, extension or no extension. Every time a result that left us as much unresolved as it resolved. False dawns. Not this time. In truth, in Brussels, although most are appalled at the self-inflicted wound that is Brexit, many officials are privately whispering the awful Boris-inspired mantra, when, oh when, will they get Brexit done? As EU leaders struggled over their dinner on Thursday night to reach an historic commitment to climate targets, of which more are none, journalists came back to the Justice Lipsius Council building from Brussels restaurants for what they now expected would be a marathon late-night session. One thing was on our minds, however. Engrossed and appalled, we watched the exit poll on our computer screens or on the TV screens in the press bar. A clear majority. Our exit poll is suggesting... At dinner over their main course, the leaders took in the news from their twittering mobile phones. Brexit will be done. Britain will leave on January the 31st. Definitively. Europe can move on. And if these numbers are broadly correct, Boris Johnson may just have redrawn the map. The summit resumed on Friday morning to take the next step. Because, in truth, Brexit is not yet done. Far from it. The next round of talks on the future relationship, on trade and a rake of other issues, should begin in February. The summit tasked its new Belgian president, Charles Michel, to prepare a mandate for the negotiations. And it welcomed the reappointment of Michel Barnier to coordinate the talks with our own Phil Hogan, trade commissioner, running the crucial trade dimension. Crucially, Michel and the other leaders put down a clear marker. The EU will not be a pushover. Boris may want tariff-free, quota-free deals, allowing UK goods to pass seamlessly into the EU markets. That can happen, they said, if the UK accepts regulatory alignment with the EU on an ongoing basis to ensure no social or environmental dumping. No undercutting of EU competitiveness through deregulation of labour standards or health and safety requirements. And where it happens, the level playing field will be restored by tariffs or other compensatory measures. Getting it all done by the end of the transition period will be hugely problematic. And if, as Boris insists, they will not ask for an extension, the prospect of a hard, final, cliff-edged Brexit still looms. The summit also qualified as a landmark moment for its embrace not without Polish difficulties of the target of 2050 climate neutrality and the Commission's Green New Deal. It was not enough, however, to save the COP's 25 climate summit in Madrid from ending in deadlock. But for the EU, the move marked an important shift up in gears on the issue by the new Commission and the new Council, 
a claim on the international stage to global leadership on the issue that will test member states. Ireland in particular faces enormous difficulties meeting the interim targets of 50 to 55% carbon emission cuts by 2030. Council President Charles Michel, giving his first briefing to journalists, spoke of his ambition for le leadership international and for his even more formidable challenge of brokering between the 27 Remainer states a deal on the union's multi-annual financial framework, its 2021 to 2027 trillion euro budget. Given that the British, with all their baggage, were now leaving, I asked him was there not a French word for leadership? Stumped, he replied that he would have to get back to me on that. In French, of course. The French word direction doesn't quite convey the necessary sense of command by example. Fortunately, the EU's English language regime will survive Brexit. That's all for this year. The podcast has been fun to do. I hope it's been enjoyable to listen to. We look forward to your company again throughout 2020. And we wish all of you a happy new year. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.